welcome to the data show i'm your host ben lorica here with my good friend emil ephraim founder and ceo of neo technology a startup in the san francisco bay area uh, very well known to people who uh, are into graph processing and graph analytics welcome to the data show emil thank you ben great to be here so let's talk a little bit about the graphs and how you got into graphs because uh, uh, there could have been many many things that uh, um, you could be studying or working on but why graphs <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a great question yeah I, I, I so so the graph space is, is kind of exploding right now there's a there's a lot of new technologies and way more importantly, a lot of use cases and, and actual real-world problems being solved with graphs today. But I actually think that sort of my my intro point, my vantage point into graphs is a little bit unusual um, in the sense that I didn't come at it from a sort of mathematical graph theory perspective, um, but rather from, from an sort of enterprise solving a real problem uh, with software perspective. And uh, the problem we had is that, you know, a long time ago, way back when dinosaurs ruled the earth, uh, back in <laughs> 99, 2000, um, in, in the first bubble, um, I was working at a, at, at a startup in Sweden. I'm, I'm Swedish. And we were building enterprise content management systems. And enterprise content management is, is kind of like a, you can think of it as a, as a big file system on the web, basically. Um, and we were doing, you know, software as a service, although we called it ASP back then, Application Service Provider, if you, if you remember. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's a blast from the past. Um, and, 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 and also, we had a multi-tenant application, although we didn't know that term, right? But basically, it meant that even though we had multiple customers and all of those customers believed that they had sort of their own system, it actually ran off of the, the same platform in the same runtime, right? And, and so... Imagine building that system, which which fundamentally is, is a big hierarchical data set, which is all the files with folders and folders and folders, etc. Um, and then you have to add a sophisticated security model on top of that so that you make sure that customer X does not see you know, customer Y's files, even though logically it actually belongs to the same file system. And you know, we had customers, in, and this is, again, 15 years ago at, at this startup, right? We had customers such as the Swedish military, which, by the way, when I tell this story in America, they go like, what all two tanks right <laughs> but you know so the swedish military right and then we had you know random ad agency two-person ad agency right and you don't want the content from the military to leak out to that ad agency that's a uh, that's a career limiting thing if that happens right um and so so then you have to apply the security model where you basically marry you have what, what, what we built was a hierarchical model uh even on the security side where we say that let's say ben you're in let's let's say product marketing that group right and then that group actually belongs to multiple groups it belongs to the product management group and to the marketing group. And, and those groups in turn belong to one group called O'Reilly, right? And then we say that the O'Reilly group has read access to this base folder. So everyone that belongs to that group directly or indirectly has read access to everything in this folder and everything below it, right? But then we say that product marketing has write access to that folder. And you can, you can see how this builds up a big, big complicated network of permissions and security and access, right? 
and when you grab a piece of content, yeah, still, and, still, that doesn't uh, that doesn't mean you have to build a graph database. No, it it doesn't. <laughs> doesn't. Right? Well, so so what we ended up doing is that so we we had an engineering team of about 10, 20 people. I was the CTO, and I noticed that half of my guys and and a couple of girls, but half half of my team um, spent the majority of their time fighting against the relational database. And ultimately, it was because there was a mismatch. So the 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 sort of data shape that they were working with was not a great fit for tables, the relational abstractions, right? And you can store anything in, in the relational database. We all know that, right? I mean, right. Yeah, that's you know, theoretically proven. Um, but it was just not a good fit. It was a lot of hard work. And so and we, so that was one problem that we sort of, huh, this is not a good fit for the abstractions that were exposed. And I've always been a fan of the relational database. And even today, I'm a fan of the relational database. And you know how people like to paint sort of the, the former NoSQL vendors, right, as sort of anti-relational? And I, I've never understood that because I think relational technology is, is absolutely amazing. Plus, MySQL is Swedish. Exactly. Just, just yeah, <laughs> national pride, if nothing else, right? Um, but at all, in all the previous projects in my life, um, the relational database had been an accelerator. And here, it was really slowing us down. Um, and so what we ended up concluding was that the problem was this mismatch between, between the shape of the data and the abstractions that were exposed by our infrastructure. And, and at that point, we said, OK, what if we had a database that just exposed these amazing sort of um, uh, network-oriented data structures or graph-oriented data structures, but other than that, had all the properties of a relational database? Wouldn't that be great, right? And so we, we thought to ourselves, we can't be the first people to have, you know, come up with this idea. So we started, you know, Alta Vistaing around and Lycosing around. We didn't, Google didn't exist back then, right? So we started exciting around or whatever it was um, and, and, and trying to find a database that, that worked like this. Um, but we couldn't find one. And so then ultimately we, we said sort of the, the famous last words, right? Where we, it's like, you know, hey, let's just build it ourselves. You know, how hard can it be? Um, right, and right. It, turned, it turns out so 15 this, years later. Point, that at, this point, you, you, at this point, when you asked yourself this question, this was strictly inside the startup. You weren't thinking of, oh, let's build this ourselves and start a company. No, we just said, let's build this so we can solve this problem and, and make, make all the pain of our development go away. And, and then, and then uh, at what point then uh, did you evolve into a separate uh, entity? Yeah, so, so then we ended up building it. We, we rewrote our enterprise content management application on top of it. It was like amazing. You know, it was so much easier to model everything. It was so much faster and all those good things. Um, but we saw that there was no sort of general acceptance of taking a new type of database to the market. We always thought of it as more generic. We didn't build it, you know, custom just for the enterprise content management use case. We built a generic infrastructure. Um, but we didn't think that we could take it to market in 02, 03, 04. And, and then in 07 is when both the Dynamo paper had been published and, and the Big Table paper had been published out of Amazon and, and Google, respectively. Um, and that's when in sort of early adopter uh, circuits, the discourse started to change. The discourse was more like, huh, maybe the era of the one-size-fits-all database is over. Maybe our job isn't to just take all of our data and shove it into the relational database. Maybe there are some other tools and technologies and abstractions out there that make better sense for some data. Um, and that was in 07. But in the course like, of, uh, Emil, in the course of the five, this five-year period, were you running into people who were saying, hey, uh, I can use what you just built? No. No, no, no. So basically, at, 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 at that point, we were just working on this internally at that other startup. And we ended up building our enterprise content management system. And we kind of talked with people, whatever, over beers and over coffee about it. But really, like the, the, the way that people responded was that, look, the relational database is like, think of it as 
as a mathematical axiom. There will be innovation in data, but that's all going to be on top of the relational database, right? And I think this was because of the hangover of the object-oriented databases. Do you, right. do you remember the object yes, yes, yeah, yes. of the 90s, right? And, and they promised the world, and then Larry Ellison killed them with one single keynote at Oracle Open World. <laughs> um, and they all went away. And, and I think that the sort of generally accepted truth was that the relational database will always be here, and it's going to be this foundational layer upon which you build all data innovation. Yeah, and then uh, as you point out, the big table and the Dynamo paper really ushered in basically a whole new set of uh, key value stores, mostly. Uh, absolutely, I mean it's just amazing. I think I, I really think it was like lightning struck in, in in the community, and and then of course, as you well know, I mean you you're, you stayed so close to this even even back then, right? You know. Release date, and bam, the next day, 12 open source projects, right, implementing it. And then the next day, 24 new ones, right? right. It, was just, it was just crazy back then, right? Um, but, so you, but you guys jumped into the fray at that point. Well, at that point, we, we said, huh, for whatever reason, uh, you know, and, and when I write my memoirs, which, of course, I will at one point, Mm. Um, then I'm going to say that I sat down in guru meditation position and figured it all out, you know, seven years earlier. But of course, that was not true. We just sort of accidentally happened to stumble into this. But for whatever reason, we had then for seven or eight years been working on this alternative database. And we said, huh, okay, you know, the, the Dynamo model is nice. The big table abstractions, they're, they're, they're neat. But we think that there's room for a more relationship-oriented view of data. And we've been working on this now for seven years. So now is probably a great time to be spinning this out. And so that's what we did. And uh, at that point, so did you describe yourself at that point uh, in, er, from the onset as a graph database? <laughs> great question. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. So, so what we had built was this, this thing that very clearly had value, but it didn't have a product category, right? So we, we, we had a name for it. We called it Neo. But we couldn't say Neo is an X. What is it? Resolve X. I mean, what is X, right? And X, is it a database? Okay, yes. But like, it's more than just a database. It's not, it's not a relational database. So it's, it's what is X, right? And so we tried a bunch of different things, actually. I tried network-oriented database <laughs> was one of those. And then I tried uh, net-based, like network plus database. So, um, so, what, so you're talking 2008? Yeah, yeah, 07. Well, so I know. So, so, then, uh, so then at that point, there were these big social media companies. So the notion of networks and maybe graphs were starting to be much more common, right? That was actually the trigger point. When, when actually, if you, if you look back on, I don't know if it exists on whatever the web archive or something, but if you look back on front, like Facebook front pages back around 07 and 08, that's when uh, it, they started describing it as a utility for the social graph. So all of a sudden, like Mark Zuckerberg moved the word graph into more of a common vocabulary, right? And even, I mean, today, when you look at TechCrunch, people like, you know, consumer web people talk about graphs as, as, as if it's just a standard accepted term, right? But that was not the case back in 05 and 06. And it was very much a mathematical term, right? Um, but that was the trigger point. And I, I thought to myself, okay, so maybe let's try this out. Let's call it a graph database. And the moment we call it a graph database, it just took off. Yeah, people became, just responded I, to it. I think that's when I started hearing about it and you guys showed up at Full Camp. Yeah, Full Camp, I think in 07 or 08, then we definitely talk, talked about it as a graph database. And, and, and we started getting attention. And then at, uh, at that point, uh, so how would you, so you would have to find someone with a big graph, basically. Well, 
Yes and no. I mean, I think the the runtime, you know, back in 08 and 07, I think the the runtime characteristics and the runtime benefits really kicked in when you had, you know, larger graphs. But we always felt that even from a domain modeling perspective, you know, almost all domains in the world have connections between between their entities. And once you have connections between entities, relationships are really valuable. So we thought that even for small projects, it's actually valuable to have a graph perspective on that domain. Um, and, and that's one, one narrative that I think even today hasn't really fully uh, lived up to its potential. I think that even in tiny data sets that people wouldn't naturally think of as, as graphs, I actually think the graph model is the easiest way to model a domain. So, so the the original name, or is it? Uh, it might still be the name. I mean, uh, Neo4j. Yeah. So the J is Java. Yeah, the J the J is JVM, right? right. So we were written on top of the JVM, and it was kind of a mistake. We shouldn't have named it that, but you know, we were you know absolutely broke, <laughs> and Neo.com was like hideously expensive. I don't remember how expensive it was. It might might have been like five thousand dollars or something like this, but it was way above our budget. Um, and, and we came out of the Java community and, and back then, you know, there's a very common pattern that you had, you know, log4j, for example, right? Oh, right um, right, and, and we added the 4j, which kind of doesn't make sense. What do you mean Neo for like log4j means logging for Java, Neo4j? I mean, what does that mean? A Neo for Java? Right. <laughs> it didn't really mean anything, but the domain name was available and it was a short and, you know, hashtagable name. Um, and so that's what we went with. Now, of course, we're. I mean, there's no way that you can detect that we that we run on top of the JVM, right? It's right. I mean, right. You, it's a server like like any other database, and you can use it from any language. Um, but uh, but that's the origin of the name. So, uh, in your keynote uh, a few weeks ago at your uh, at the Graph Connect conference, you yeah. had this slide where you listed out kind of the uh, major use cases that at least you guys are seeing for your technology. Yeah, and I think. Uh, Let's go through those because some people might be surprised with some of the uh, the variety of use cases that you're seeing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and, and this is this is kind of part I think of the of the growing up uh, sort of phase of the of the technology. In that when we start out, it's easy as technologies to articulate the the technical value proposition, which is hey, you know, we're going to make it easier to manage connected data. It's going to be a lot faster, less impedance mismatch with your domain, and you know, performance benefits, etc. Um, but in order to really take a technology mainstream, it's beneficial if you can attach it to use cases, right? And 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 now we're starting to see a couple of patterns and we last year one of the one of the objectives for the company was to identify <laughs> the top five use cases for graph databases you know by, by looking at our user base and of course as you will know ben you know <laughs> w- w- when you have a list of of, f- of five things that you want to get it ends up being a list of six right because right. you always have this you know favorite thing that you want to squeeze in there so now we have the we, we call it the 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 top five list of six use cases right but but they are really the the most popular ways that you use graph databases today, and 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 you know I, I can just you know go through them really 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 quickly and yeah, then yeah. So the first the, the, the first one actually uh, I think people who are familiar with uh, social media it won't be that surprising, right? So recommendations. Yeah, exactly. Real time recommendations, right? Which is all about looking at people and and product and places and how they relate, and then finding patterns in that, right? So so Ben, you bought these three items, and I bought the same three items, except this fourth item that I bought. You haven't bought, so let's recommend that one to you, which is a classic sort of triadic closure type algorithm. And it's always na- na- naive how, how simple it is to express it in a, in a graph database. And of course, once you double click on that, you actually want to probably go a little bit deeper. You don't want to just look at 
individual products, but you want to look at their product categories, right? So, so one of those products might be a book, let's say, I don't know, The Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien or something like that, right? Which belongs to a category called fantasy books, which belongs to a category called fiction books, which belongs to a category called books. And you want to make a recommendation based on that category rather than just the individual items. And if you look at something like that, in order to just resolve one simple recommendation, you probably have to do 20 to 30 to 40 hops in the connected data structure. And, and that's something that in a relational database, depending on size, of course, but with non-trivial amount of data, it's probably hours, right? right. And in a graph database, it's a sub-millisecond type operation. Um, so that's a very, very strong use case uh, for, for graph databases. And then uh, I guess somewhat related because it's uh, somewhat more in the uh, uh, algorithmic uh, categories, fraud detection. Yeah, fraud detection. That, that's that's actually one of the, the um, at the same time, most appealing and at the same time hardest use cases just because it's such a good fit for graph databases because it's all so, about so categories. Explain, explain that because people, you know, in, in the data space, people will say, well, fraud detection, don't I just score? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that, that's a great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If if you look into fraud detection, actually, there's there's a there's a trend that is called entity link analysis in fraud detection, where where you can do a lot of of fraud detection with just basic correlation analysis. Um, but what correlation analysis may or very likely will miss are things like fraud links, right? Where you have um, a, a transfer of money that originates every single transaction is within the accepted band in the correlation analysis, but the combination of all of them creates a fraud ring, um, which is one of the hardest things to detect and very easy to do with with a graph database because it's all about links. Uh, and and then the the second one on your actual list, master data management, I think kind of. Uh, seems to be historically what you guys were trying to solve in your startup, right? Yeah, no, that's actually not the historical use case. The historical use case I would classify as identity and access. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, but the master data management use case is basically, uh, you know, at b big global 2000 companies, you would have a number of master data projects and master data are things like all your products, all your customers, um, all your suppliers, all your employees, stuff like that. Things that change, but not super rapidly. So like an invoice, that's not master data, right? Uh, that, that, or a commercial transaction, that's not master data. And it turns out in, in, in master data, there's a lot of at least hierarchical and very frequently graphy data. In uh, your employees are organized in hierarchies and in networks. Your suppliers, I mean, your supply chain is obviously a graph, um, et cetera, et cetera. And your products, products with parts. Um, so that turns out to be a, a very graphy Gra lots of very graphy data sets and, and very popular. So Cisco is a big user of, of Neo4j here. So at, at this point in the evolution of the, the space, how much, uh, how much education do you still need to do? In other words, uh, uh, do you just, can you just uh, go into a company and they kind of appreciate uh, the value of a, a graph uh, database or do you still have to explain? Huge amount of education. Huge amounts of education. I mean, I think that amongst the early adopter community here in you know, you know the echo chamber of Silicon Valley, uh, a lot of people, I'd say, you know, vast majority of geeks are are uh, aware of graph databases. Many are even familiar with graph databases. But even here in Silicon Valley, there's this misconception that graph databases are are exclusively useful for social, right? Um, and and which is which is kind of a, a 
kind of a dangerous half-truth, right? Because, because graph databases are very useful for social data. They're just not exclusively useful for social data. <laughs> and, and, and if you look at the, the use cases or the, the customer base of our, our customer base at Neo4j, um, it's actually primarily outside of the social area, right? But so even in the echo chamber, there's still a lot of education to be done. And of course, as graph databases go mainstream, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of evangelism left to do. So what's the... So... Was it, is the typical scenario is I have, I'm struggling with something. Let's say that something is either fraud detection or real-time uh, recommendation, right? And yeah. then I, I cast my eye around and then somehow I realize, oh, maybe this can be done as a graph. Is that, yeah. is that how people stumble upon what you guys do? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. We, we see, broadly speaking, two types of, uh, of, of engagements, right? Um, the, the first one is is when you set out and it's a greenfield project, you're building something from scratch, you look at it, you realize that, holy shit, this is very connected data, right? Like my domain and the value in my domain is not just storing the individuals, but it's how they're connected, right? If you're Facebook, right? Or it's not just storing the, like a long list of purchase orders, but it's actually analyzing how they're connected to other people in, in recommendations or something like this, right? And they realize that they can think of their data as a graph and that's very beneficial. And so they start out with a graph database. So that, that's, easier easier project. that's easier for you, right? So absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely, right? So that's one. And the other one is, you know, I I'm, I'm already have a system up and running. I'm building, uh, I don't know, networking IT operations thing, right? Like, so I'm, I'm managing like a big network at a telco or I'm managing uh, a data center, something like this, right? And I want to be able to do root cause analysis. What happens if, if this cell to- tower falls down? What's gonna, how's that going to impact my network, right? And it was built in the, I don't know, early 2000s or something like this, right? So of course it uses a relational database. But over time, I'm getting increasingly more pain because there's more connected data in my relational database and I want to do more things with it. And my joints are killing me. And then I throw in a cache and I try, I mean, I buy all the expensive consultants from Oracle. I mean, like I do all of that, but fundamentally it's a mismatch of, of shape of data and, and the abstractions in, in the relational database. And at that point I say, I need a graph database, right? I've heard about this graph database thing it should be good at this this type of connected things um let's take some of my data and move that over to a graph database and you have a sort of you know i guess the common term for this is a polyglot persistence type deployment right and so greenfield or an existing very typically relational database uh back project those are the two ways so the uh, for the greenfield project probably they've already done some amount of self-education yeah Enough so that they realize that it's a graph that they're actually working, that their domain is very connected. So, yes. Whereas in the existing uh, deployment, you may have to go in there and and do some convincing that a graph would be the right uh, way to go. Well, both yes and no. What's interesting with the existing deployment is that it's an actual system. If you talk, if if you if you set aside startups and and talk about big enterprises, yeah, 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 yeah. it's it's an enterprise that is up and running with a system that is critical for them, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't they 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 wouldn't be looking at looking out for solutions, right? Uh, so it's critical for them. It may even be revenue impacting, um, and at that point, and they have a very very high pain. Um, so at that point, we actually find those fairly easy once. Once we've been able to um, to to find them and get engaged, and they've been able to find us, it's actually pretty easy. So uh, in databases, uh, so besides use cases, there's also the notion of workloads, right? So yes. I think we talked about this in the past. Yeah. Uh, trans- oh, so the I guess the two common ways of people uh, talking about this is transactions and analysis. 
So I was actually surprised when you said that actually uh, we do a lot of uh, business on the transaction. Yes, I mean this is this is one of the things where if if you recall back where what I where I, we first started out, we said that our original vision was let's build something that is identical to the relational database because we're big fans of the relational database, um, just with a new model. So then. Since we see uh, you know, uh, Neo4j as a way of being like really backing a mission-critical application and being sometimes the, the only database backing it, um, we, it has to be transactional. Of course it has to be transactional. And that just goes without saying, right? So, so we just built that into, you know, from, from, from the get-go. Um, and, and so now, where we are today, we see that, I'd say, probably 90-plus percent of our users are using us in a transactional uh, capacity. But then uh, at some point, they want to have reports and analysis, right? Yes, <laughs> that is that is true. And you know, this is interesting, right? Because I, I actually love to get your get your your thoughts on this because you spend some amount of time thinking about data I hear. Um, but I actually I actually have a little rant on, on the whole sort of analytics and, and analysis thing. I actually think that as an industry, we don't really know what that word means. And 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 my reasoning is that I, I think the way that we in sort of started coining um, the term analysis is that way back in the days when we only had a relational database, we, there was very clear cut. These were transactional operations and there, there were things that you could do within you know, a reasonable low latency with a relational database, right? Those, those we called transactional. But then there were a number of things that ideally we would like to do in real time, but that the relational database couldn't do. And those transactions, uh, those operations, we were forced to sort of move offline we did a data dump once every day or every week or something like this. We put it in our data warehouse and we threw star schemas at it and cubes and whatnot, right? And in order to facilitate the type of operations that you couldn't do in real time on the relational database. And our muscle memory now called those operations analytical operations. Now enter graph databases. And with graph databases, a lot of those operations, not all, definitely not all, but a lot of those operations can actually be done in real time. So when I talk about recommendations, the type of operations that we do in order to recommend things in, in real time for big customers like Target and, 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 and uh, Walmart, right, who are using Neo4j, um, those operations to a classic sort of trained data professional look like analytic operations. But it's really only because our muscle memory as an industry have taught us that the operations that the relational database can do in real time, we call those analytic operations. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, 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 yeah. But also, I mean, I, I think even for graphs, you'll have the notion of there might be some reports that you want to run that, well, that yes. may take longer, right? Yes, absolutely. And and but but the trigger point when you sort of move from let's call it OLTP to OLAP or from transaction to analytical is completely different. That that line is drawn completely different right. than with the relational database. And the key trigger point for that is what's called graph global operations. So when you have operations that touch the entire graph, so let's say that you want to do something like, like a trivial example, give me, you have a billion plus node graph and you say, hey, give me all the nodes in my graph uh, sorted by the amount of relationships. So give me the top 50 nodes with the highest degree, right? So the, the, right, the most, right. most connections to them, right? That operation has to, cut, to touch the entire graph database. Or, the, or, or can you say something like, give me the top 50 nodes with a certain uh, criteria, but that are located in uh, in uh, Scandinavia. Well, Scandinavia. Th then, then you start. So the people are located right. in Scandinavia. In other yeah, words, they, so it's a sub subset of the graph, but somewhat else involves a first pass query on the entire graph, right? 
Well, so but but if you constrain it to Scandinavia, then you then it won't be the entire graph, and then it's going to be somewhere in between, right? Then it's going to be somewhere in between graph global and graph local, and that's that's the thing. It's it's always a grayscale here, I but see. some but some things are completely graph global, and at that point you won't be able to do it in real time. So that's if so if it's somewhere in between, at some point there's a there's a there's a tipping point where okay, so now we can't do this in real time. Anymore. Exactly, I see. And, and at that point, you want to move to a graph compute system. And these are systems like Giraffe, for example, right. or GraphX, part of, part of Spark. Right. And, and, and at that point, they, they are amazing at scaling that out across many, many machines and, and crunching it really in a, in a more batch-oriented offline analytics type pipeline um, that will read or get a dump from your real-time system, your operational database like Neo4j, um, and then crunch that and, and do those graph global operations uh, offline. So uh, another common operation that people do with data is search. Yes. And uh, I imagine graph-based search is somewhat uh, uh, different from just regular search. Yes, yes. And this is a very common use case for for, for graphs, and in fact, if you look inside of the consumer web, it's probably the original consumer web use case of graphs, right? So back in the late 90s, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about our respective war stories from the from the first bubble, right? And and in the late 90s, there were 50 or so search engines around the you know Excites and Lycosis and Alta Vistas of the world, right? And and they all did the same thing. They downloaded the entire internet, right? Every single page on the internet, which I thought was amazing, right? Um, and then you search for Lorica, right? And then you look inside of every single one of those pages. Yes, you're going to have indexes, but conceptually, you look inside of every single one of those pages and you serve the results back of every page that includes the word band Lorica, for example. Um, and they all did exactly the same thing. And then a tiny little startup came along, which did that, exactly the same thing. But on top of that, they also extracted the links between the pages, right? And built up that graph and ranked the search results based on that graph. Of course, the algorithm was called PageRank. Ironically enough, I mean, not a lot of people know this, but not based on page as in web page, but page as in Larry Page, right? So the, the, the inventor of the algorithm. Um, and, and of course, that tiny little startup was Google. And what they did, if you abstract it, is that they said that, hey, if you have a if you look at data not just in isolation, but you also have a relationship perspective of it, then you're going to be able to search and find a lot more relevant information. And this is something that we now see take off inside of the enterprise, where it's a very common deployment where you see Neo4j side by side with, for example, Elasticsearch or Solar or something like this. And you use sort of standard full text search to get the raw data set. And then you use the graph to rank it and provide more relevant search results. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so speaking of enterprise, in typical enterprise, so where does a graph database fit in an enterprise architecture? And by that, I mean, uh, I think that as we move towards kind of more of this distributed computing setting, yeah. people are starting to think, well, maybe I can run fewer systems, but uh, they'll be somewhat of a somewhat hybrid in the sense that they're not going to be as good as these specialized systems, but 80% of they're 80% of the way. And by uh, running this hybrid system, I can uh, run fewer systems. So it's a it's a graph database like Neo4j kind of kind of off to the side. Then you have you have kind of this data lake, and then you have the specialized systems, one of which is a graph database. So how wh where do you guys? Fit? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, so so first off, when when it comes to data lake and all that, right? So our our home really in inside of the enterprise to, today is on the operational side, right? 
and the OLTP side. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which means that really where we live is where the applications live, right? So the applications that serve customers in real time, right? The Either the, you know, the, the fraud detection so type. So you have to be 99.9999%. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we, we, we have a lot of applications where like if we go down for a minute or two, like it's going to show up in the earnings call for, for that CEO the, the next quarter, right? Uh, it really, it's really revenue impacting, and 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 so so that we really want sort of the operational side of the family, um, and and at that point, it's it looks and feels very much like a classic relational database, right? So you would have an application, you deploy it onto, you know, your, let's say your your Java, it's like a bunch of Tomcat servers or a bunch of PHP, not as common inside of the enterprise, but that that works as well, right? So you have a bunch of application servers, right, and they all connect to a cluster of databases in order to get their real-time data needs. Um, and that cluster could be, you know, MySQL or Oracle, um, or it could be Neo4j. And so it looks and feels and smells human, very yeah, similar human, to a relational uh, database. I guess some people have tried to, I mean, shoehorn these key value stores to do graphs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then uh, the advantage being is they can do kind of the uh, fast updates, fast inserts. That's right. And, and but maybe maybe the way the data is laid out is still not optimized for these connected uh, connected data scenarios. Exactly. And 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 I think that you know I think there is a lot of confusion in the early rise of the alternative database market than the NoSQL market, right? But but fundamentally, like all of these new models, and by new models I mean key value and you know called family and document and graph, like they're all isomorphic. Right, which is which is a fancy way of saying that given a data set, you can squeeze it into any one of these models. Right, you can always squeeze a graph into a key value, value store. You can always squeeze a document into a key value store and a key values into a document. And, and then, of course, right. nowadays you have the rise of people who say we do everything. We're multi- exactly, we're exactly. Multi- we're multi-model, but yeah, I haven't seen actually ones that have taken off. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, and my, my perspective, just as to take that tangent, the multimodal tangent, I think the, my perspective on that is that like the era of the one-size-fits-all database is over. It's never going to come back. You're always going to be able to get 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times better performance and better fit with, with a problem with, with a database where the, the shape of the data fits, fits the data model. Um, and it becomes no more like the, the one-size-fits-all database becomes no more true because it's not relational, right? Just because it's it's document plus key value plus this and that doesn't make it more of a better kitchen sink than the relational database is. And of course, since you've positioned yourself in the mission-critical application side, then there, every kind of uh, ounce of performance advantage matters. That's right, absolutely. And and so so I think just to get back to the to the sort of the key value pair so so all these models are isomorphic you can put data into all of them so that's no longer the interesting question can I put my data in in this in this model because the the answer is always yes you can always do it so that's that's not an interesting question the interesting question is is it a good fit for the problem at hand and what we've seen over and over again is that when you have a key value store and you try to squeeze a graph in it, yes, it's doable, but you won't get any of the sort of amazing graph traversal, graph pattern matching type operations that lead to all of these amazing use cases with real-time recommendations and graph-based search and, and all those things. Speaking of which, I, of pattern matching, I think one of the things that you guys have done that's interesting is you've tried to open up uh, graph databases to a broader user base. And yeah. One of the main ways you've done that is through Cypher, which yeah. is now open. It's yeah. called OpenCypher. So why don't you explain to our listeners what's uh, the goal of OpenCypher? 
Sure, sure. Well, so let me let me zoom out a little bit and just put cipher cipher in context first, right? So so cipher is you, you can think of it as the SQL for graphs, right? So it's a it's a declarative query language which makes it very easy and productive for developers, but also for like data analysts and business analysts and data scientists uh, to express graphy and non-graphy operations on typically a graph substrate. Um, and it's really the, you know, we've, we've tried a bunch of iterations on how, how to best communicate graph operations to, to, to a graph database and a, and a graph system. You know, the first API was an embedded Java API, which had all kinds of benefits. But, but ultimately, we didn't feel like the imperative approach to graph queries was the right one. And so Cypher is the best one that we've been able to come up with. And, and we think that it's you know, quite amazing in the types of developer productivity benefits that you get out of it. We very frequently see people getting 10x more sort of productivity out of an application based on Cypher versus one based on imperative code like the you know, embedded. So it's a, it's yeah. a declarative. Yes, yes. And it's pattern matched. So it's pattern based, right? So, so basically, it turns out that a very common operation that you want to do in, in, on a graph system is that you want to say, "Hey, you know, let you know, find find a node called Ben and all the things that that he's connected to, if they're also connected to a node called Emil, right?" And so at that point, you build up a little graph, and the way that you express that in Cipher is for the for the sort of graybeard geeks amongst us, right, is with ASCII art, right? Uh, which I'm sure a new generation goes, "What's ASCII art?" But for me, growing up, ASCII art was <laughs> was a key way you communicated on the on the internet in the in the late eighties and early nineties. Um, and but you, so you describe this little pattern using ASCII art, and then you throw it over the wire to something like Neo4j, and it would find instances of that pattern and re, re, you know, refl reflect that bad back as a result to you. But to to be clear, uh, the the learning curve isn't that much different than learning SQL. It, it isn't, and and we we see. We see pe people have, you know, started sitting down with Cipher, and then half an hour later, they're they're productive. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely, it's pretty amazing to see how how easy you can pick it up if you have a background in something like SQL. So the goal of Open Cipher is to take Cipher to other systems, not just Nia. Exactly right. So so it's been you know, for J, you know, proprietary. I mean, it's still open source. J is open source, right? So so it's, it's been open in that sense, but it hasn't been easy to take that. And make it uh, and run on top of other graph systems. And so, what we've announced, we haven't yet. Uh, you know, it's, it's still you know to be you know all all to be intellectually honest here, right? It's still vaporware in the sense that you can't download the code today. Uh, but we're going to work really hard in getting that out out there in the next few months. Um, is that we're going to take Open Cipher, make a, a reference implementation available under an Apache license, publish the specification both both in English and then in Something like you know BNF, etc. You know something that is machine readable, um, and really uh, get uh, an, a full planner, full optimizer, etc. Available under a permissive license, and it should be you know we sh we're going to try to expose a few very very uh, small and elegant SPIs for for graph database vendors to to implement, and then bam, they're off and running, and they can accept Cipher. And you've got two uh, big and uh, very different communities who've signed on. Uh, Oracle and Spark. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it was. Uh, uh, I got a lot of you know comments on that afterwards uh, at at our Graph Connect conference when when I was on stage with with uh, an executive from Oracle, right? Which which is not that that doesn't typically happen at a Graph Connect show, right? <laughs> right. Um, but but yeah, no. So so Oracle is very excited about uh, uh, OpenCypher. They they see that you know seventy to eighty percent of all um, Graph use users out there in the world using Graph databases um, are use are written with Cypher um, and uh, think that it's a very, very productive language to, to work in. Um, so that's speaking, very excited about that. Actually, speaking of uh, GraphConnect, one of the things that uh, really caught my eye is uh, the project you have with IBM, where yeah. I think it's kind of like uh, uh, you guys working with uh, uh, IBM engineers to really leverage these next generation non-volatile RAM system. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they, they have a, a very big um, sort of push in this Power 8, uh, Power 8 uh, line of systems. And they also actually have an open power. <laughs> it's kind of symmetrical to Cypher and open Cypher, uh, if you will. But it's, it's, it's really quite fascinating technology where they have uh, you know, what they call Cappy Flash, which is really a way of accessing SSDs in on a completely different level uh, in terms of uh, latency and, 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 and throughput. So it's, and clo it's closer to RAM and speed. It, it, it is. And, and you, you can get, and I actually, I don't remember the marketing term for it, but, but you can always think of it as, as a box with huge amounts of RAM, even though some of that RAM is actually going to be more like SSD. Um, and we think that's very, very interesting for graphs in particular, because with graphs, you, you always um, have benefits of having it all in the same image. Right, so memory image. If you have to split it up across multiple memory images across across multiple machines, uh, that gives you some benefits. But you then run into the risk of having to hop across the network in order to satisfy a request, which of course isn't great. Um, and with with IBM really, you know, upping the upping the level here in terms of the type of, of RAM that you can comfortably access, um, it really takes graph processing to a to a different level. And particularly since you're again you're on the operation sides of of the enterprise, this really can be a game changer. It, it, it can, right? Because latency is so important for us because it's all, it's all real time stuff that, that 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 we're doing. And I think that like the IBM thing stuff is is very you know important and interesting. And I think it's part of a general trend. So Intel is working on similar things, and AMD I'm sure is working on similar things, and Micron etc. Um, so it's part of a of a greater trend of making. Yeah, you really. I, I think of it as moving SS, kind of the similar um, benefits uh, to SSD that SSD brought versus spinning disk. It's really a paradigm shift in in how you work with with SSDs. Um, so, so we're pretty excited about that. So, what's your take on the really, really rapid growth in cloud computing? And here, I'm not uh, limiting myself to Amazon. Uh, Azure and the Google Compute Platform are really taking off. Yeah. Well, so, so my take on that—I mean, I have—I have lots of takes on that, <laughs> um, and we can we can take it in in many different conversations. But from the from the perspective of of data, um, I actually think that let me let me provide this perspective and, and let me see if you agree with me or not. But I actually think that there's only exactly one point in time when you can take a new type of database to the market. And I'm focusing on the operational side. Um, if, if you look through back in, in, the, you know, in, in history, um, we've really only been able to build big database companies when there's been a platform shift. Right, so Oracle was built, you know, on the platform shift of going from mainstream to client server. 
right? And then the next big platform shift was client server to web. And that's when we got MySQL, right? And now it's very clear what the big platform shift is right now. And it's, of course, from uh, whatever web, LAMP stack, you know, on-prem type systems onto the cloud. And when you have big platform shifts, for whatever reasons, good or bad, people reevaluate re their stack. They think to themselves, well, you know, the, the toolchain that I used on the mainframe, of course that won't work, or maybe it won't work in client-server. So, so there's a willingness in the, in the market and in the community um, to accept reevaluating of the uh, reevaluation of the stack. And that is what's happening right now as the world moves to more cloud platforms um, as a method of delivering their applications. And I think that's one of the key enablers, actually, for why we have this explosion of databases on the operational side. And uh, at, at some point, then, uh, most of your data might be housed in systems in the cloud, and you might not even need to care that much about uh, uh, the details or what's under the hood or, yeah. right? So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's an inevitable future, and and I think it's it's TBD. It's never going to be a hundred zero, like a hundred percent in the public cloud versus zero percent on prem. That's probably never ever going to happen. But it's very clear it won't be zero hundred either, right? And the question is, is it going to be ninety percent in the public cloud and ten percent on prem? Like who knows? Uh, you know, I tend to err on the side that I think that actually the absolute vast majority of data and applications are going to be running off of a public cloud. Right. 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 Uh, so let's close with uh, a, pres a presentation you gave early this year, which uh, uh, I happened to come across online. Uh, um, Probably using some kind of a graph-based search. And I, and I think that uh, for the audience out there, you should uh, look up the slides. It's on SlideShare. But uh, the title of the presentation is Building an American Company with a Swedish Soul. Uh, so uh, why don't you uh, elaborate on, on, on the title of this presentation? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so we've talked a lot about the, the technology here in Neo4j, right? But there's a company backing it called Neo Technology. Um, and we're about 100 plus people now, um, and probably 120, I think, something like that. Um, and uh, we started out in Sweden. Um, we got you know started in 07 or something like that. Um, and then in 11, we were raised to seed round from actually a good friend of yours, Ben, from Nikolai Hall oh, yeah. <laughs> at Sunstone uh, back in 09. So at full camp. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, and then in eleven, uh, I moved over. We raised the ten million dollar A round, and I moved over here to uh, to the valley, and we got headquartered here. And we talk a lot internally about about culture and how to foster an amazing culture, cultivate the we 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 love our culture and want to cultivate it. And and one of the terms that we use is this, you know, an American company with a Swedish soul. Which basically, and, if uh, uh, does that mean so without actually. Uh, if I have, if I didn't uh, see the slide presentation, does that mean socialism, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's it's great to say that, right? So, so my background is, you know, I'm, I'm Swedish, um, but politically is like on the left flank of of Swedish politics, <laughs> politics, right? And and you know, from 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 a Swedish perspective, I don't want to turn this into you know party politics. Then then you have to beep it all out, I'm sure. <laughs> but like from a from a Swedish perspective, America has you know two big political parties. Like one is super far to the right, and then they have the Republicans to the right of them, right? right, right, right. <laughs> so that's sort of the perspective that I grew up with. And if you have that perspective, you know, it's not common in that in the group of people. Uh, that, that subscribe to that view, that you uh, admire big American companies, 
But I actually always did. And yes, there are so many things that are flawed about big American companies. Yes, we all know that. But at the at the end of the day, if you look inside the Fortune 500, we, we are a little bit data-driven. We're on the data show here, right? Right, right? And you see that the vast majority of them are big American companies, right? right. And so clearly, it, you know, whatever they do, it works, right? And and so what I've taken to heart when I tried to build, um, you know, NEO is that, you know, there are a number of aspects about American companies that are really good. And I love the ambition and the aggressiveness and the, you know, setting high goals and then measure yourself to, towards getting those goals. Um, I love that aspect. But there are also aspects about American companies, and I'm stereotyping now, right? right. Um, but that I don't really like, which is, you know, maybe not always the best treatment of your employees. Um, and, and Sweden, on the flip side, uh, is has... You know, there's a lot of things not to be admired about Swedish business culture, but I do feel that there's a very humane approach to treating your employees and colleagues. And so what we want to do is we really marry the two, right? So we would have a company with high ambitions, very aggressive, and you know, measure ourselves to really high standards. Um, but at the same time, you know, for example, uh, it would it's not just okay for an entry-level individual um, to challenge the CEO if, if they disagree with what I'm saying. It's not just okay, it's required. And that's something that I, that I talk about all the time. Like, if you disagree with our direction, like, it's not okay for you to sit down and be quiet. And, and that's something that I learned when I moved here to the U.S., where, where I would truly have to encourage people to, to challenge me, to challenge leadership. Uh, otherwise, they would just do what I told them to do. You know, I've which, come across which a to few, me is very surprising, right? I've come across a few startups uh, where uh, on the engineering side, you know, uh, for the new engineers that they hired, they encouraged them to, uh, to do the following, which is... Look at our technology, or look at our stack, and uh, tell us what what we're doing wrong, or what 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 should we change, right? So right. these are like their entry level engineers right. that they're encouraging. Yeah, perfect, love it, love it. And and this is not something that I had to encourage in Sweden, right? So my my colleagues in Sweden would constantly tell me that I'm stupid <laughs> and wrong. <laughs> Right. Which which is great. And you, you want that. Right. And and then here in America, it took me a long time to realize, like, wait, they, they, they're not agreeing with me. They just do what I tell them anyway. Like, that's kind of that's not a good thing. Um, so so that's one example where we try to sort of marry the best of Swedish business culture with the with the best of American business culture. Are we being successful? No, of course not. There are a number of situations where we where we, where we can't live up to the best of Sweden, the best of America. But that's the ambition. So the key question then, Emil, is uh, how much vacation time? Do I get if I work for Nia? <laughs> <laughs> it depends on where you work. So, so that's one thing, one area. Unlike MySQL, and I guess you you asked the question because MySQL sort of famously rolled out Swedish six weeks of vacation across the board. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's the right the right way to do it. So it depends. Here in America, it's whatever two, three, four weeks of PTO or whatever it is. Right in Sweden, it's six weeks. So you get you got to move to Sweden, Ben. <laughs> All right, this has been great. It's uh, great to actually uh, do a deep dive on graphs. Because I think a lot of people in data uh, hear about graphs, but not not as many actually have hands-on experience working with that. That's probably true. Yeah. T temporarily so. Temporarily so. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. You can follow Emil Ephraim on Twitter, at Emil Ephraim. That's E-M-I-L-E-I-F-R-E-M. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.